It's Jonathan Mosen welcoming you to episode 25 of Mosen at Large. Today, I've been hacked, and I'm going to tell you about it, but I suspect it's not the story you think I'm going to tell. As we head towards a very difficult anniversary in New Zealand, I reflect on hate speech in a disability context, and we reminisce about Monopoly. Mosen at Large Podcast. If you'd like to contribute to the show, you can drop an email that can contain an audio clip using your favorite smartphone app or PC or Mac app. Or you can just write an email down in the good old-fashioned way, jonathan at mushroomfm.com. Jonathan is spelled J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. You can also use the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. And you can hear the show live on Mushroom FM at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday. That's the way to get the full three hours, music and all, and engage in real time with what's going on. There are also some great shows on Mushroom FM, so check it out, mushroomfm.com, or you can just ask your device of choice to play Mushroom FM. It's on TuneIn and many other radio apps. And a reminder that the podcast is heavily segmented by chapters, so you can skip forward and back if you're using a podcast app that supports chapter marks. And reviews help. A small podcast like this, if you like what you're hearing, do feel free to give us a five-star rating and review it positively in whatever way you can. We appreciate that. I hope the week has been good for you. It's been a different one for me. And I've been reflecting on the fact that over the years, I've been pretty open about sharing things that have happened to me in my life through various things like blogs and podcasts and that kind of thing, radio shows. But I wasn't intending to tell you what I'm about to tell you now. Earlier in the week, I got hacked. And in case it helps someone else, I want to explain why that happened. When I was a teenager, I had my fair share of the usual teenage troubles and angst. But one thing I didn't have a lot of trouble with was pimples. So last year, I was surprised to find what I tactually identified as a pimple on my left cheek when I was shaving. I got some stuff to put on it and I tried squeezing it, but I couldn't get rid of the blasted thing. So last year, in December, I finally got around to going to see my GP and asking him about this silly thing. I'm very busy as a rule, and perhaps this is a male tendency, but I tend to just tough things out and figure it's not that important. My doctor, on the other hand, took a very different view, adopted a very concerned tone of voice in a very doctorly-like fashion, and he took a biopsy. Over the summer break, the results came back. Yes, it was skin cancer. And yes, it was malignant, but it's a very common form of cancer, which, while it can do some damage if it's not dealt with, is dealt with very easily. And that's how I ended up being hacked this week. I went under a local anaesthetic while a surgeon went in deep and removed the carcinoma. I'm not over-dramatizing this. People get this procedure done all the time. It's not dramatic, it's not unusual, and I expect to be around for a very long time yet. So I wasn't going to talk to you about this, but I do look visibly hacked at the moment. As I do the show, I have two layers of stitches, and my cheek is covered with that special surgical tape. In a job like my day job, despite feeling a bit self-conscious at first, I've had to just keep on going and attending meetings. And when people politely ask me if I'm okay, I explain that I'm now just fine. And I realized that I had been given an opportunity and a gift 
the opportunity is the teachable moment I've been presented with to remind people to act quickly if they notice anything suspicious and that it's better to go to a doctor and find there's nothing wrong than to soldier on until things get more complicated and risky. The gift I've been given is that when you have even the tiniest brush with the dreaded C word, it makes you appreciate all you have. It gives you a sense of perspective. It reminds you how temporary everything and everybody is, how fleeting the time we have on this earth, and how trivial most of our conflicts are. It reminds you what a fundamentally random lottery, and a cruel lottery at times, life can be. I've lost friends and loved ones to cancer. It is all just horribly random. It's caused me to hug Bonnie and my kids just that little bit longer and tighter. So I live to fight another day. I tell you all this to say, if you notice something a bit odd, please go to your doctor and ask them to check it out. The world is a better place with you in it. And just a little selfishly, I need all the listeners I can get. (laughs) Seriously, if you have any doubts, get checked out. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. Hey, Jonathan, I wanted to comment on the issues regarding the employment stuff. Um, I work in talent acquisition as a blind professional, and I think a couple of the things that uh, I see an issue with are the lack of self-confidence in the blindness community for getting a job regardless of whether they've done interviewing or not, the lack of interviewing skills, and the lack of soft skills compared to that. All three of those, and plus the other sort of stigmas on top of it. Rejection is a thing as well, I believe, too. Uh, I'm not saying that you know, some people are not doing a good job or not trying, but sometimes it just takes the right fit and the right employee to niche into the correct spot to plug into the correct spot. And I think that the way we present ourselves comes down to the problem as well. And again, not putting anybody out here, but that's just what I have seen from my experience. Now, when it comes to mobility and the portability of iOS and bare displays in general, I'm trying to move a lot of my input to where I'm inputting forms into user processing or for meetings where I'm meeting with hiring managers to discuss potential candidates, all that stuff. I'm actually putting that into my iPhone using Ulysses. And Jonathan, I do have to say that it's really a good way to do stuff. I'm I know. That I'm really I know. excited to get more into it because it's really powerful. And I don't think a lot of people realize how powerful these devices are. There are many computers. And I've got my... You just let your soup drinker that, go off. So yeah. it, when I said that, it came on. But um, it allows me to just carry my braille display and my iPhone and most when I'm not just, And I find that experience really freeing 
and I'm excited to see what else I can do and kind of push the limits of it. Um, but I hope you're having a nice day and really enjoy the podcast because you are mainly what I listen to on the weekends and I get my news from and then, you know, fresh week to start out with. Whoa. Thank you, Aaron. That was Aaron, by the way. Let's deal with a couple of those. I really appreciate the message. Yes, I think for a long time, one of the big issues for blind people using iOS was that as they became more capable content creation devices rather than just content consumption devices, voiceover really wasn't keeping up. And I don't think that's the case anymore. And so when you find a powerful app like Ulysses that takes advantage of all of the content creation review features that are now in voiceover, it is a pretty compelling combination. And if I know that I'm writing a document which I'm going to read, and I, like you, typically just take my Braille display and my phone if I'm going to read something, then I will actually generate the whole thing in Ulysses and just leave it there. This show heavily relies on Ulysses because whenever I have a thought I just say, I've got a series shortcut set up and I say new explosion story and I take a note of that thought so that in the hubbub of putting the show together, I don't forget things I wanted to talk to you about. Regarding the issue of employment, I think you make some very good points and it's important for us not to be judgmental because sometimes we just end up going through a long phase where we are in the wrong place at the wrong time and it can be incredibly demoralizing, but we do maximize our chances of a win with the right kind of employer if we make sure that everything's clean, there are no stains, you know, we dress well, that when we write our letters of application, they're formatted well using good visuals, those things do matter. And it demonstrates that if we are given the opportunity, we will be able to perform well in the workplace. And unfortunately, when we are a minority like we are, we may be the first blind person that this potential employer has ever met. It's a shame that we have to feel like we're in education mode all the time, but the reality is often that's what we have to do. And the more blind people we can get into employment, hopefully the less of a problem that will be, which does remind me, a couple of weeks ago, Workbridge, the organization of which I'm chief executive here in New Zealand, produced the next episode of its podcast, which I do, called Mahi, spelled M-A-H-I. And there is a discussion there that people may find interesting because we got people with a range of perspectives and disabilities to discuss the question of disclosure. At what point do you tell a potential employer about your impairment? And there were varying views, so there wasn't a consensus. And, you know, it's it's a thorny question of the ages, isn't it? So if you'd like to hear that, you can get Mahi, M-A-H-I, the official podcast of Workbridge, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Jonathan. Daniel Summero here, calling hey, from Illinois in the good old U.S. of A. Um, calling with a question as far as overcast and voice control. Um, have you ever gotten voice control to double tap on a podcast? Because I keep saying, for instance, double tap Applevis podcast, and it doesn't do it. So am I missing something? Do I need to add something to the voice control dictionary? Um, how do I do that? Anyway, I love your podcast. Thank you for doing it every week. And uh, 
look forward to hearing tonight's. All right, see ya. I haven't used voice control for a wee while, actually, and the reason for that is that now that I have Castro, I find I'm listening to a lot more podcasts than I used to. So in the morning, I used to use voice control to catch up on my RSS feeds while I was getting ready for work. Now I tend to put a podcast on. But I did have a play with this, and I may be mistaken, but I think the behavior has changed in this latest round of beta for iOS, because I'm pretty sure what used to be able to happen was that you could say select and then give the item name. And if it was on the screen, it would select it. And then you could say double tap. So you might like to try that to see if it works. I can't get that to work anymore. In fact, I used to be able to say swipe left and swipe right. And I would just be able to flick around the screen with voice control. But now it seems like you have to say voiceover select previous item and voiceover select next item, which is a heck of a mouthful. So I have to play with this some more because it has been a little while, as I say, since I really used voice control, but it looks like it may be changing. But for any voice control aficionados who do this regularly, and and I also no longer have Overcast on my phone because I'm using Castro, so I can't test with Overcast specifically, uh, people can chime in and perhaps edumacate Educate us both. Hi, Jonathan, says Aditya. Hi, Aditya, says Jonathan. First, he says, let me congratulate you on doing such a wonderful podcast. Well, thank you. Since November 2019, I have been regularly listening to Mosin at Large and just love the same. The audio quality of the podcast is super, and I love your voice. Well, you should be my agent. (laughs) Thank you very much. I love to listen to Mosin at Large on my Bose frames. Every Sunday, I ensure that my Bose frames are fully charged in advance before listening to your podcast. Oh my, I really do not know which is better, your podcast or your Bose frames. Your Bose frames are probably a little bit more bendable than the podcast, or, or me for that matter. I love them both. In your latest podcast, you mentioned that you use the Apple Magic Keyboard. I've recently got myself the same and need to learn to use the same with my iPhone, which is running iOS 12 still. I am a Windows user and have no prior experience of using a Mac or any other Bluetooth keyboard with my iDevice. I will appreciate in case you can recommend any good and simple guide which explains how to use Bluetooth keyboard with voiceover on iOS I would also love to know as to how did you rename your Alexa as Subject? Though I know you will not share this trick. Well, you got that one, right? Yeah, regards. And that is Aditya Garg. Thank you very much. Good to hear from you. Well, there are lots of ways that you could explore your Apple Magic keyboard's capabilities. Essentially, you've got two modes. One is to explore the screen while holding down the VO key. The VO key could either be the control and option keys, or it could be the caps lock key. And you can then use the arrow keys to navigate the screen and various other keyboard commands. You can go into voiceover settings and go into the practice area and just press keys to find out what they do. You can also press the left and right arrow keys together to toggle quick nav mode on and off. And I think in iOS 12, it still says quick nav mode on and off when you toggle them. But in iOS 13, it plays a cool little sound, an ascending tone, 
when QuickNav is on and a descending tone when it's off. But there is also a very good Apple knowledge base article. And I suspect if you consult Google by typing in something like voiceover iOS keyboard commands, it is important to make sure that it's iOS because there is also, of course, voiceover for Mac. And while the commands are similar in many respects, there are a few differences then you should be able to get the information that you want. There is a really good knowledge base article from Apple that shows you all the commands. And once you're familiar with the basic concepts, then you should be able to go into the voiceover practice area and just press them and get familiar with what they do. So good luck. It's a good keyboard, the Apple Magic Keyboard, now that it's behaving nicely again with iOS 13 and made for iPhone hearing aids. So I'm enjoying having one at home and when at work, they really are a joy to type on. And when you're using an app like Ulysses a lot to write documents, it's a marvelous combination. Marvelous is what it is. Hi, Jonathan. Hello. Nice to first time caller. Welcome. I have a question. You know how you call into Apple Care, and they can log into your phone and see your screen. Is there an app? that you can give or download and have a personal friend log into your phone to see your screen? Because Apple says, you know, if you have something personal on the phone, they can log out. I mean, they can pause it or whatever. But if I want to have somebody see something that's personal on my screen and that's have it have it being being sought by a personal friend is there an app for that the answer is not really but it depends on what it is that you want your friend to do there is an app called team viewer and if you're a windows user you may have heard of team viewer before i use team viewer a lot with ira to help with inaccessible sites and various things of that nature and there is a team viewer for ios And it's a little fiddly, but you can share your screen through TeamViewer. And that allows a personal friend or an IRA agent or anybody that you trust to take a look at what's on your screen. And sometimes that can be helpful. What TeamViewer for iOS will not do, unlike its Android buddy, is give the remote user any kind of control So if you want them to be able to choose items for you, tap things, complete forms, all that sort of stuff, the kind of thing you might use JAWS Tandem for as well, then you can't do that on an iDevice. The only people who have those magic powers are Apple themselves. So, yep, someone can look at your screen, but they can't control the phone. I was reading my What Happened on This Day in History thing that I look at because Sometimes I get some inspiration for topics for the show from that. And it said that on this day, March the 7th, 1933, the game of Monopoly was invented. And I know that that is not actually the case. I know it isn't. But I do remember playing the Monopoly board game when I was a kid, the Braille Monopoly board game. And I remember, I believe my friend Mark had one first and I was absolutely enthralled. And Mark and I used to play Monopoly a lot. We really got into this. And then eventually I got my own Monopoly set. 
and played it a lot. Mark and I, over the years, and we've been friends since we were very young, have played so many games of Monopoly. It is absolutely scary to think of how many games of Monopoly, how many hours I've spent on Monopoly. With the Braille Monopoly, you got all the tokens, you got Braille and print money, you got all the title deed cards in Braille and print and all that kind of stuff. It was a, it was a, quite a beautiful, massive thing, actually, the Braille Monopoly board and, and set. And with it were the official rules from Parker Brothers. And at the beginning of the rules, it talks about how Charles Darrow was down on his luck during the Great Depression, and he wanted to find a way to feed his family, and he amused himself by devising this game. And over time, he played it with friends, and everybody found it really interesting and addictive, and so he decided to commercialize the game, and eventually it got to Parker Brothers. Now, that is simply not true. If you were interested in this... I really highly recommend, so much so that I read the book again yesterday after I read this blurb in my history thing, a book called The Monopolists by Mary Pylon, spelled P-I-L-O-N, The Monopolists. I read it from Apple Books, but it may be available in other places. She tells a remarkable story, and she was really motivated to write this story because in the 1970s, an economics professor who was quite a kind of a left-wing activist and had a wife and a couple of young kids played the game of Monopoly. And he was concerned that the game of Monopoly promoted this sort of dog-eat-dog, monopolistic, capitalistic behavior. So he devised a game called Anti-Monopoly. And when Anti-Monopoly started to get a little bit of traction, Parker Brothers came a knocking with a trademark infringement. And so started a 10-year case that went all the way to the Supreme Court, except that the Supreme Court declined to intervene. He eventually won that case. I mean, that's on the public record, so it's not really a spoiler. But it was an amazing story of how he uncovered the true origins of Monopoly. And Monopoly goes back, in fact, to 1903, when a fascinating woman named Lizzie Magee invented this game called the Landlord's Game. And it was actually a way of promoting and teaching the tax theories of Henry George. Yeah, she patented it. She actually got a patent for the Landlord's Game in 1903. And over time, people varied the game a little bit. And there were some Quakers in Atlantic City who got a derived version of this Landlord's Game going. And they created a few rules of their own and created street names relating to Atlantic City streets and everything. And then some friends got hold of it, took it to Pennsylvania, and Charles Darrow actually copied that Monopoly board, literally, including the misspelling of Marvin Gardens, which is supposed to be M-A-R-V-E-N, but on the board, the homemade board that Charles Darrow copied, it was misspelled M-A-R-V-I-N, and it's still there to this day. And so they unearthed this incredible story of how Charles Darrow actually took an existing game that was in the public domain, sold it to Parker Brothers, who trademarked it. It was It's, it's a remarkable story of deception, really, because Charles Darrow made a lot of money from that Monopoly game. So the way that Mary 
Pylon writes this book, she really brings the characters to life. It could be quite a boring story, but you really get to feel like you are becoming familiar with these characters. And she talks a lot about their their personal circumstances and things. And Charles Darrow had a very difficult situation on his hands because he was genuinely down on his luck. And he had a son with an intellectual disability that was caused from probable scarlet fever. So it's brilliant. It's a brilliant read. And it completely shatters the myth that the Monopoly game was invented in the 1930s. It absolutely was not. It doesn't change the fact that I am the world blind Monopoly champion, self-proclaimed, so there. And I have loved the game of Monopoly since I was a kid. And I've instilled that love of Monopoly in my own kids. The first game of Monopoly I played with Heidi, she was about five or six. And it went on for about eight or nine hours and she never got bored. And we've loved Monopoly ever since. I have to say, my kids like Monopoly with varying degrees of enthusiasm. Heidi really does love it. Nicola kind of likes it. David, he kind of likes, when he was a kid, he used to like being a bit, um, radical <laughs> and trying to just mess up the games uh, but it's it's fun it's it's fun and over the years I've played various versions of Monopoly and I wonder whether you have any memories of the Monopoly games that you've played one thing here in New Zealand that's interesting is that we got the British Monopoly which came along a little bit later Parker Brothers sold the rights to a British company and they changed the names of all the streets um, Park Place became Park Lane and Boardwalk became Mayfair and on and on it goes. But of course, I got the American Braille Monopoly and have become a bit of a purist. There are so many variations of boards that you can play, but I do like playing with the original board game, the American one. And I also like playing with the proper rules because if you allow money on free parking and that kind of thing, you add liquidity into the game and you actually prolong it and you make it even more of a game of chance. I mean, of course, there's an element of chance, but the less liquidity you add, the more of a game of skill it actually is. I'm afraid I do take Monopoly quite seriously. <laughs> so I like the American original Atlantic City board game. I have also played it on various computer operating systems over the years. The first one I remember playing in the DOS days was a very accurate depiction of the Monopoly game and it was developed by a guy called Don Philip Gibson I still remember that and it was quite graphical but for whatever reason it spoke text directly to the synthesizer just that the way it happened to be written you couldn't really review the screen in most places but it would speak directly to the speech synthesizer and I remember this is really going back getting a version of uh, Tiny Talk which was I guess the DOS equivalent of NVDA in some ways, uh, done by a guy called Eric Bowman. And I, you could actually save all the settings that were optimal and then create an executable file and take it anywhere. So it was portable with all those settings intact. And I remember creating a, uh, a Monopoly optimized version of Tiny Talk called TT Mon. And I would run this before playing the Monopoly by Don Philip Gibson. But that was a very good version of the game because it was super accurate with the rules. You could do auctioning of properties. The mortgaging worked properly. It was really good. So I enjoyed that. There were a few other Monopoly games for DOS that I played over the years that weren't quite so accurate, but were fun. And the accessible Monopoly game that is also seriously accurate in Windows is the Jim Kitchen one. 
from Kitchens Inc., sadly the late Jim Kitchen, and he was a stickler for the rules as well. You could vary the rules and you could have all sorts of boards and you could actually make your own boards, but the proper rules were followable. Unfortunately, there is no online accessible option that I have found that follows the rules of Monopoly properly, which is really annoying. So when I want to play Monopoly with somebody online, I run the Jim Kitchen game and we play it yeah, basically by listening to the speech and me operating it, which isn't quite as fun, but I'd rather have that than play a game that doesn't follow the rules. It's really annoying. And of course, there are all sorts of monopoly strategies that we may want to talk about. There's a lot of, uh, there are many misconceptions out there about how to win a game of monopoly. People think that Boardwalk and Park Place are the ones to go for. They are not necessarily. Andy says, the first time I ever played Monopoly, as wacky as this is, is when Jim Kitchen released a version for Windows. There we go. He did such a good job of that. Shane Jackson says, I still have an old Blind World podcast of Abby and me. We were playing using the old Monopoly board game. I still have that old board with all original pieces. Mine kind of got a bit tattered and shattered with all the kids playing it. One child, who I should not name in the interest of being a a, a a decent dad, got really angry once when they landed on one of my properties and ripped up a $50 note. My Monopoly board really was worse for wear, and I just recently replaced it. So I now have a shiny new Monopoly board just like the one I used to know. Ian Lackey says, my Braille Monopoly game has migrated to our loft. I think it may be some time before it finds its way down to the house. So was yours the English board, Ian? Did they make a British version of Monopoly with the English place names? Ian Lackey says, yes, it is the British version with all the London street names. I don't think it is available anymore. The board is so big. I'm sure one game would significantly increase your step count. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the American Monopoly board is pretty big as well, actually. Christopher Duffley, welcome to you. He says, Monopoly is such a great game. I used to play that all the time. Aren't the rules being followed on RS Games version? No. One area in particular that really is problematic with that version is that if you land on a property that you can't afford to pay the rent for. So you've landed and say somebody's got hotels or a large number of houses on a property. Your turn ends and you don't actually have to pay the debt until the next turn, which actually really can distort the game because if you also have hotels and somebody lands on you, it could make the difference between whether you might have had to declare bankruptcy in the previous turn and not. So what should happen is that when you land on a property, you shouldn't be able to go on until you've paid your debt. They know this. You know, I've had a chat to the IRS Games people, and I've even said, dude, dude, I will pay. I will actually pay. I will donate whatever it costs to get the Monopoly game rewritten or, or amended so that it properly follows the rules. 
but apparently it's just too difficult to unpick now. I think that was the original Arius game, wasn't it? It's been around since 2009. I could be wrong about this one, but I don't think it allows for auctioning off properties when you land on one that you don't want to buy. And uh, that's also a pretty important part of the original Monopoly rules. Kathy Blackburn, hello. My family played a Monopoly when I was young. My mother brailed all the play money and the community chest and chance cards. Isn't that a kind thing to do? Wow. She scored the board with a sharp object so I could tell where the squares were. I've played the RS games version online, but not in a while. If I'm playing games, I can't listen to podcasts or read books or work on my knitting. And RS games do such a good job, don't they? They really do a good job. Uh, I like to play 1,000 Miles. Bonnie does not because she gets frustrated. And I say, it's a good game of strategy, man. And she gets really frustrated when I do a penalty card on her. And oh, oh. we never hear the end of it. So 1,000 Miles is great. We also play Uno and the Farkle on um, Irish Games. It's good. There are a lot of good games on Irish Games. They do a very good service. That's what they do. Also, I have not yet come across a version of Monopoly that follows the rules for iOS. So there's... Um, the blindfold, is it called blindfoldopoly or something like that? And that doesn't follow the full Monopoly rules either. So I can't bring myself to play that. Oh, I, yes, I know I need to chill. But but look, I, I'm pretty damn good at Monopoly, so I love <laughs> I like to play it properly. Hey, Jonathan. I hope you're doing very well. Super. First, I want to start with the... A listener's question last week about accessible Wi-Fi routers. I used TP-Link, D-Link, Netgear, Tender, Asus, currently on Asus. All brands are accessible for me. I had little bit problem with getting feedback on TP-Link routers. TP-Link routers interface is very accessible but if you change any settings and hit save you would not get any web page refresh so that's the little issue there there is also app called tp link tether you can use that on your smartphone that is better optimized and would give better feedback currently using asus router it's very accessible but I do not recommend them to the people who just wanted to set up their router and forget about it because Asus router default settings do not have that good optimization. You need to change each and every setting and play tweaks with it until you find your best spot. TP-Link routers do not have that issue so people who want it not to tweak with their routers and play around with it i would strongly recommend tp-link routers despite the accessibility feedback issue next thing i wanted to ask you a question is what antivirus are you using and what antivirus are people are using with jaws because it's being a long time when ryan jones of freedom scientific 
did a webinar about antivirus softwares but those are changed it's been 6 7 years right now i am currently sticking with windows defender but i wanted to know the feedback thank you anil it sounds like they might be coming for you man like is it sirens i can hear in the background <laughs> hope you'll be here in future weeks I am probably going to give you a heretical answer in the minds of some, but I have found the Windows Defender built into Windows adequate. I do know enough about computing generally not to visit silly things. And if I have cause for concern, I will install and run Malwarebytes, but I don't keep it on my system. I install it when I think there might be an issue and run it. And normally, I'm clean, I'm clean. So... I found what's built into Windows quite adequate and you're right there are some real accessibility challenges with a lot of these apps uh, and sometimes you buy a new laptop and there's McAfee which is very difficult to install and creates all sorts of hassles so I have just stuck with Windows Defender and I'm sure others might have some other recommendations for you I agree with you TP-Link stuff is good I have never used a TP-Link router but I have used other TP-Link gear and the price is right you know they come in at quite a good price point and they seem to do quite a good job particularly in the wifi and networking space hi jonathan it's may thompson here hello may well i noticed that you were going to be speaking about hate crime mm well i haven't had any experience of that i'm glad to say but two things i had once when i was going out to get a bus this cheeky teenager a couple of boys were saying your bus is coming and i knew fine it wasn't you know and they were just being stupid and said the bus was coming or things like that and then just try to take the mickey you know and i thought well i can hear a bus and it was not coming and uh, then another woman was on the bus once when i had i think i had dawn with me i think she was in her little sling she was just a little baby and I heard a woman saying she shouldn't have children so I thought oh well fine so I didn't answer her couldn't be you know I just thought that was ridiculous anyway I've had the same problem with my iPhone again I lost voice over completely today I'm, I remembered what the guy had said to do so I had to get ready to do it because no way could I do it because my phone obviously with voice over not working is just totally unusable. I knew the voiceover was on ostensibly because the sounds were there. You could hear the sounds and the clicks and the you know when you swiped and everything like that. But voiceover I tried to triple click it and it just would not work. So I had to go back to settings and I had to erase all settings. And how annoying that is because it means that you've got to redo Apple Pay, you've got to put Apple Pay back, you've got to, every time you go into your apps, you've got to share your location. Ugh, it's just annoying. That must be incredibly frustrating, May, and I'm very sorry that it's happened to you twice in such rapid succession. It did happen to me in the early oh. stages of the iOS 13 cycle, but it hasn't happened to me for a long time. So I take it you are definitely running the latest official build of iOS 13 I'm sure that the Apple tech would have checked that when he was in having a look at your situation when this came up when a lot of people were having the problem some people said one really easy way to fix it was to make a call with Siri to somebody 
and then just disconnect the call and that voiceover speech tended to come back. So that might be worth a shot if it happens to you again, but it's not one that's happened to me for quite some time. So it's curious that it's happening to you. And yes, it's really frustrating. And I guess it's just fortunate that you have some sighted assistants on hand to take a look. May was talking about the incident she had where somebody mentioned within earshot of her when she had her little baby daughter with her that May shouldn't have children because obviously she's blind, therefore she shouldn't have children. And I'm just glad that if that sort of thing had to happen, it happened when your daughter, Dawn, was too young to understand because it happened to me as well when I took some of the kids to a McDonald's. And I actually, we were just sitting there having a great time and I had somebody walk up to me and challenge me about what I was doing out with children. And I said, well, they are mine. And then they got really irate. You know, what on earth are you doing as a blind person being a parent? And unfortunately, in that situation, my kids were old enough to understand. And so I had to say, well, thank you for the feedback. But actually, this is no concern of yours. And I'd appreciate being left in peace with my children. It's very hard not to lose your rag in a situation like that. But uh, it was a teachable moment because I think my kids were more affronted than I was. This is actually something I see a lot that when the kids encounter discrimination, I guess we just become a little bit not immune to it, but you have to just keep it in perspective, don't you? Otherwise, you'd be angry all the time. But when they encounter it directly, it really offends them that people are so stupid. And so we certainly had quite a discussion about why some random individual would come up to us in a McDonald's and and suggest that it was just totally wrong for me as a blind person to be a father. Just absolutely crazy stuff, and it's horrible when that happens. Here's Ian Lackey, who says, When the kind of problem May has experienced happens to me, I would check the language settings in the rotor with my Braille display. Thanks, Ian. Yeah, if you do have Braille, and I think May, you still have your orbit, don't you? So if you've got a way of getting the orbit talking, you can perhaps get yourself out of the situation. Of course, not everybody has access to a Braille display, and it should just work. I mean, this is a pretty fundamental thing when the speech in a screen reader stops working. Hey, Jonathan, I've uh, come across a uh, situation here on my iPhone 10. And iOS 13.4 beta 4. Now, a couple of things. One, an app I use called Who Sampled. And at the update, it came out a few weeks ago, broke accessibility. So when I went into it, I clunk, 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 clunk. And it wouldn't work. And this was on iOS 13.31. And uh, the first, when I upgraded to iOS. Uh, 13.4 went from, I think it was 13.2 beta when, when that came out, and then I went to 3, and then when I upgraded to 4, that has now been resolved. So I'm able to use Who Sample. Now, Who Sample is an app that's similar to what Spotify does, and it allows you to shazam a song or get history on a song and where it was sampled, mainly for the remix type community on the, the DJs and stuff for today. But it's a, it's a good history lesson for even myself, you know, finding out where a song comes from, DNA of it, etc. Another thing too I've noticed is that Daniel says 
when I'm browsing YouTube and I get something from the BBC or CBS, Daniel says, BBC. He says it very fast. <laughs> same goes to CBS, he says, CBS. But it's not the same with ABC and uh, the other ones. I haven't noticed that. It's just with BBC or CBS. It's just very subtle, yeah. It's, it's Go the Black Caps, and it's a shame that Radio Sport is not covering the Women's Cricket World Cup. And I posted this on Twitter um, about this frustration that uh, what Radio Sport has done, and they wanted the five E deal. That the five E deal, cricket was going to give them a two year. And I, I'm actually for New Zealand cricket in a way. I think they should take over the streaming rights for that and just uh, update, uh, rebuild their app because their app isn't very accessible. The Black Caps will rebuild it or even create their own app with all the all cricket around the world, like what they do with ABC and BBC, etc. And then just have the streaming from there where you pay a subscription so you'd have your app. You'd have a, 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 a skill for the drinker and Google Home and you can list as much cricket as you want. If you can do that with the American sports codes, I, I want to be able to do the same with uh, with the here in New Zealand because it means money, revenue from New Zealanders, which also means revenue into the top down level for the game. That's David Harvey in Auckland. Thank you, David. I certainly would subscribe to an international cricket app. I think this is one of the challenges posed by the sports that Americans tend to play, like baseball and American football, that are in the main played only in their country, and international sports like cricket that are played from all around the world where all sorts of geographical and international considerations have to be taken into account. But I think the MLB app is the gold standard. It's an amazing app just to have, you know, pay a subscription, get all the games in one place, and it would be wonderful if the ICC, which for those who don't know is the governing body of cricket, got its acts together and let us subscribe to various plans, one that had video and one that had audio, but the rights are so fragmented, including the online rights, that I don't think that's going to happen. Certainly, if needs be, streaming would be an option for some people for the audio commentary going forward of Cricket in New Zealand, but it still won't satisfy everybody who like to have some portable device, you know, when they're at the beach or painting the house or doing those things. That kind of thing, just having cricket on, is the sound of summer when you're doing other things. And an exclusively streaming feature would exclude quite a few of those people. So I hope that they will find some other home on the radio or that Radio Sports and New Zealand Cricket will have their heads banged together and that we'll find some sort of way forward for this. Regarding your iOS issues, I haven't heard the speeding up thing at all, so I'm not sure what's going on there. But there are certainly some pretty serious issues still with this beta of iOS. One that I see has crept in is notifications are no longer scrolling. We had this in the early part of iOS 13, and now they're back. So if you wake up in the morning and you get a lot of notifications, the only way you can get to them all is to clear some of the previous notifications out of the notification center. So I'm really disappointed that that bug has come back and hopefully that one will be fixed by the time the official release happens. Also, the triple tap to invoke the context menu is still broken as well. So, well, let's just hope there are a few more builds 
Otherwise, it's going to be a dodgy build. It's going to feel like a downgrade for many people. Over to the email we go. And Tim has been in touch. He says, hey, Jonathan, I am looking for an accessible radon detector for my home. I figured you might have one and could make a suggestion. Well, you know what, Tim? You flummoxed me because not only can I not recommend anything, I have no idea what this is. And so I Googled it. And then I talked to the incredible Bonnie about it. And I said, have you heard of this thing called radon? Apparently it's a colorless, odorless gas. And it's responsible for, I think it said, about 20% of lung cancer-related deaths in the United States. It sounds evil. And Bonnie said, oh, yeah, 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 I've heard of it, yeah. And so then I thought, have I been living under a rock, if you'll pardon the pun? So I looked it up, and apparently we don't have this issue in New Zealand. So radon detectors are not a thing that that I've ever heard of here, um, Tim. And so I have no idea at all. But it sounds like radon is quite a big thing in the United States. And so there may be others who can chime in on this subject of accessible radon detectors and may be able to point you in the right direction. It sounds nasty, man. Mosin at Large Podcast. On Sunday, the 15th of March, New Zealanders will be commemorating a traumatic anniversary. It'll be a year ago that a gunman opened fire at a mosque in Christchurch, then drove to a second mosque and killed even more worshippers, streaming the whole thing live on Facebook as he went. For New Zealanders, it's one of those where-were-you-when moments. Looking back, perhaps we were a smug, naive little country thinking that nothing like that could ever happen here. As one of the greatest lyricists in modern music, Bernie Taupin, so eloquently put it, it's funny how one insect can damage so much grain. I was at CSUN with my youngest daughter when the attack happened, And when the breaking news started to come through, I thought there must be some mistake. But there was no mistake. There was a despicable act of violence. I have so many vivid memories of that period. One of the most vivid of those memories is not being able to get the horror out of my head while taking my daughter to Disneyland and riding the It's a Small World ride, with its innocent song reminding us that we're all human beings on this little planet. There's so much that we share. Another vivid memory of that time was how shocked and grief-stricken as a nation we were by this atrocity and how, when I mentioned it to Americans I would encounter at CSUN, they just kind of shrug their shoulders and say phrases like, oh no, that's a shame, because so many of them had become desensitized to mass shootings in their gun culture. While we remain appalled that it happened here, we are rightfully proud that our Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, was strong, steadfast and decisive in her leadership, taking immediate steps to get guns out of the hands of the wrong people. The final memory I will share is giving Bonnie a hug when I finally arrived home tired and jet-lagged and immediately getting into a taxi with Bonnie so we could visit our local mosque and add flowers to a massive pile on the mosque's front lawn. I must confess I had never visited a mosque before. Mosques all over New Zealand were blanketed with flowers and genuine expressions of grief. New Zealand already had anti-cyberbullying legislation before the mosque attacks, 
But cyberbullying and online hate speech are different things. Cyberbullying tends to attack an individual. Hate speech targets a particular group, usually a minority group. What we learned from the mosque attacks is that when you talk about a group of people in the abstract, in a violent and hateful way, you demonize them and you dehumanize them. They stop being individuals contributing to our society, falling in love, marrying, raising kids, and just trying to get by. All those human characteristics are stripped away, and all that's left is a vile, distorted caricature. This atrocity was undoubtedly the culmination of increasingly disgusting hate speech on alt-right websites. They fuel the fire and the ignorance of the dispossessed, the socially disconnected, and the disillusioned. Now I want to tell you about something I was a part of, something that happened to me this week. I wasn't able to sleep after being hacked, so I was distracting myself by reading a Google News Alert feed that I've put together so I can catch up on stories about blindness from around the world. And I read two stories pertaining to a subject I'm interested in, rideshare guide dog refusals. We've talked about this on the show before. It's happened to Bonnie and me several times in the last few months. I know it's happened to many of you. One story talked about how an Uber driver in the United Kingdom was fined a substantial sum after a blind person took video of the driver refusing to transport them and their dog. Another story came from the United States and outlined the monitoring NFB were doing to check out how accommodating rideshare services really were of guide dog handlers. As I've mentioned before, I started using Reddit recently over my summer break, and I subscribed to the Uber subreddit. This is a place for both Uber riders and drivers to post and ask questions. Thinking that this might be of interest, I posted to the subreddit, noting that while Uber's customer service can be frustrating in some respects, in my experience they do actually take service animal refusals seriously. I noted that the approach can vary from market to market, but that here where I am in New Zealand, what happens is that if a service animal refusal is proven, the driver is deactivated and required to complete training. Part of that training involves taking and passing a test, which is administered independently. Only then will the driver be reinstated. If there's a second offence, they're banned from the platform permanently. I think this is a fair approach, but I do question whether the initial training about the legal obligations of drivers is adequate, given how many illegal service animal refusals there appear to be. I explained that in the last few months, when I've travelled with Bonnie, who's a guide dog handler, at present I'm not, we've had five service animal refusals. I posted those two articles I mentioned, and I concluded with the following points. Uber riders who use service animals should feel confident that Uber takes the matter seriously, and they should use the reporting provisions available. Second, Uber drivers need to be aware of their legal obligations. As you'd expect in a conversation like this, there's always at least one person, in this case one Uber driver, who was adamant that the disability anti-discrimination legislation where they are, the ADA in his case, was unfair, wrong and unconstitutional. Fair enough, that's the kind of stuff of which lively debates on the internet are made. 
But one Uber driver stated in a profanity-ridden tirade that my wife and I had better be careful about depriving Uber drivers of their livelihoods by reporting them because the Uber driver knows where we live and we might end up with disabilities in addition to blindness. Now, in a forum full of Uber passengers, but also Uber drivers, this not only amounts to hate speech, it amounts to incitement of violence. After there was a pushback from his original, very unambiguous violent statement, he edited the original post to be less inflammatory and wrote a second post claiming he didn't condone such behaviour. But based on the original post, there was no doubt he was trying to backtrack and save face. He had been caught in the act. I contacted Uber as well as the moderators of the subreddit and the content was finally removed. While I strongly disagree with those who said that the ADA was unfair and gave disabled people preferential treatment, it's an argument they're absolutely entitled to advance. We shouldn't seek to shut people down just because we disagree with them. As an atheist, I've been on the receiving end of that behaviour from time to time. But when violence is suggested against an entire class of people, be they Jews, Muslims, Christians, atheists, gay people or disabled people, we have a moral duty to stand up to hate speech. Long before the internet, we have many horrific examples throughout the millennia of where that sort of incitement leads. The internet is full of so-called keyboard warriors seeking attention and indulging in idiotic behaviour. You have to know which battles are worth fighting or you'll waste a lot of time being angry. My meditation and mindfulness practices have helped me a great deal in that regard, not only in terms of which battles to fight, but how to fight them. I'm proud to have been a party to having a little bit of hate speech removed from the internet this week. When it genuinely is incitement to violence against a group of vulnerable people, lack of action is tantamount to aiding and abetting. I won't stand idly by and stand for that, and I hope you don't either. The 15th of March 2019 in Christchurch is New Zealand's ghastly reminder of what can happen otherwise. Shane Jackson says the first time I played Monopoly online was with an Apple IIe with ProDOS 4.0 and an Apple Double Talk synth, which I still have. Well, that's interesting. I don't recall ever playing Monopoly with my Apple IIe. Lots of good games I do recall on the Apple IIe, though, including Lemonade Stand, which had this monophonic, we're in the money when it started up. There was also the Ad Libs game where you had to know your parts of speech. So it was kind of educational and they would come up with all these great stories. And sadly, there weren't that many of them. So after you'd played ad libs for a wee while, you kind of knew what was going to happen. But it was still fun. Those old... And Oregon Trail, of course, on the Apple IIe to shoot type POW. And you have to type all these different things to shoot. That was a fun game as well. All those old Apple IIe games. You are a braver man than I am, Christopher Duffley. He says, for the first time in my life, I'm so excitedly heading to CSUN 20. Isn't it interesting that so many of these conferences in the United States have been cancelled? I think there are so many aspects of this to consider. Blind people are obviously going to be using their hands for navigation. I kind of cringed when I read that 
CSUN were understandably publishing the official advice, which is if you get a cough, cough into your elbow. Of course, the question then arises, let's hope that the elbow that you are offered as a blind person, if you're getting sighted guide from someone who's been coughing into their elbow, is the other one, right? But also there are things like just, I have been to a lot of these conferences over the years, and sadly, it can be quite hard for blind people to maintain regular distancing without all of the social distancing that's been recommended for the coronavirus and the prevention of COVID-19. So I would have concerns about that. But also, when you consider that this is a technology conference and people are going to be putting their hands on braille displays and keyboards and, oh my goodness, the other factor to take into account as well, of course, is that for those who are traveling, you know, people will be traveling from all over, that in Los Angeles County, which is not Anaheim, but that's where the airport is, there has been a state of emergency declared, and that most concerningly of all, the U.S. is just not coping with the coronavirus. It is not measuring cases in the same way that a lot of other countries are. In the U.K., they've done 20,000 tests In South Korea, they've done over 100,000 tests. In New Zealand, you know, a little country, we're testing a couple of hundred people a day. And in the United States, they've only done about 1,500 tests so far. They've got a cruise ship out there with um, 3,000-odd passengers, and they've only tested 40-odd, of which 21 have coronavirus 19 crew members and two passengers and they still at the time that i'm producing this show haven't done the tests and of course what happens here if you can't measure it you don't you really don't know what you're dealing with and i suspect you know there there is community transmission that has occurred in some parts of the states if i had a job that required me to go to csun and i wasn't given the option not to go i would quit the job because you know if they can cancel south by southwest and they can cancel Google I.O., and they can cancel a lot of these tech conferences, and then you add the blindness element into the mix, where obviously we, of necessity, have to be more tactile. I just find it incomprehensible that that conference is still going ahead. And that's not to say that we're all going to die. You know, there's lots of hype about the coronavirus, some of it really unfortunate and, and overhyping it. But It's a serious enough issue without the need to overhype it. Even if there are people who are relatively young and fit and unlikely to get anything but mild symptoms if they catch it at all, the fact is that once you have it, you can spread it to people who aren't so fortunate. And so it's more than just being about one's self. Even if you consider yourself fit and healthy, If you get this thing and you may not even know you have it if you're reasonably healthy and you're displaying symptoms, I think there's a moral responsibility here to make sure that those people who are less healthy are protected as well. I I just find it extraordinary. And especially given that so many responsible technology companies have cancelled, Google's not going to be there, Microsoft's not going to be there, Adobe's not going to be there. Uh, So many people have rightly, in my view, cancelled You sort of wonder what kind of value for money you are getting. Hello, Jonathan, says Carolyn Pete. I well remember the afternoon of the 15th of March. At first, when I heard the news, I thought it was overseas, then registered the shock. It was here in New Zealand. I belonged to a chat group on WhatsApp for blind and vision impaired 
Aussies and Kiwis. All that afternoon, the Aussies were checking on us to see if we were okay. They, too, were in shock. What followed after that was a sharing of songs and poems of strength and love. It was very special. Thanks very much, Carolyn, and it will be uh, a difficult anniversary, but it reminds us just how important it is not to have any truck with hate speech. Email from Kathy Blackburn. Yesterday before lunch, Audley, was pre- that's her husband, was preparing to take his CNR dog outside to empty. <laughs> that's a good expression. He intended to call the dog, but what came out of his mouth was, soup drinker, insert your assistant here, come. He was in the living room while I was in the dining room where the device is. The only reason the Echo Dot didn't respond to him was that I was asking it what baseball games would be played yesterday afternoon. While Audley was outside for the heck of it, I said, soup drinker, come. And she opened the Fandango skill. Do you have Fandango in New Zealand? It's a website and Echo skill for buying movie tickets and finding out which movies are playing near you. The website indicates which films have audio description, but the Echo skill does not. Well, I often want to talk to my machine and I have to think about which one I'm talking to because we have access to so many of them. And it's like I come from a family of five children as well. I'm the youngest of five. So sometimes my parents would get the wrong name when they wanted to call one of us. Of course, if they wanted to reprimand me and got the wrong name, I would strongly encourage that. Not that, not that I ever needed reprimanding. So uh, I will ask my little echo machine here and see what it does. You know, if we're trying to call it like a, like we would call a guide dog. Soup drinker. Come. Hmm. I don't know that one. <laughs> okay. Yours was a fluke. That That is hilarious, though. It's just amazing how these things get embedded into our lives, isn't it? And we just call the thing. Here is an interesting email from Tim. Hey, Jonathan, I would be interested in your thoughts about the cancelling of the IRA Horizon system, as well as if you have any idea if the glasses could be used with a standalone Android system. Speaking purely as a consumer of the IRA service, I'm not that upset about it, to be honest, because I don't think Horizon really was ever very reliable. The concept is a very sound one, which is that you have a standalone device that you could perform a range of tasks with, including increasingly, the idea was, artificial intelligence-related tasks, because Ira was, and probably still is, uh, I have no inside information, collecting a lot of information about the things that blind people need assistance with. And the objective was, as they have presented at various CSUN presentations over the years, that eventually you'd be able to take all that information and make the service less dependent on agents. So if you had this virtual assistant thing built into Horizon that could leverage all that data, it should increasingly become more capable. When I started using Ira, I began using the Austria glasses And I liked the Austria glasses. I know that the field of view on Horizon was better, 
But I like the Austria glasses because the way I used it was with my own data plan. So I didn't carry the little MiFi device around. I would just pair it using the personal hotspot feature on my iPhone. The glasses would just go on your head. They were self-contained. And I found them actually quite a bit more reliable. That's not to say that they didn't have their glitches. I did have situations where I would have to talk to the magical Bala at Ira and have him fix things for me. So I'm not saying it was perfect, but overall I liked them better. And I just never could really get into Horizon, the, the kind of thick, chunkier glasses, the cable and the unreliability. You know, it, it would sometimes be difficult to get the phone to shut off. It would be difficult to get the thing to update. It just never really took off for me as a system. I think the most important thing now is that Ira make sure it does the right thing by those customers who are either paying Horizon off or have purchased it outright. And I got Horizon during a period where they were giving it to Ira Explorers, so I'm not affected by that. So I don't know what's going on there. I'm kind of very much out of the loop. But clearly that kind of message management and brand protection will be important when you discontinue. I would imagine also that because... Horizon came with its own SIM card that it would probably save Ira a lot of money not having to pay for all that data, I would think. And this is a challenge. Since I started doing main menu back in 2000 and even earlier when I was doing things like Blindline, the great holy grail was why can't we harness the internet to use the working eyeballs of sighted people to help with tasks And Be My Eyes have done this in a slightly different way using volunteers. They seem to be doing okay as well. They've just got a cash injection of another uh, almost $3 million, I believe it is. So they're doing quite well. And Ira is doing it with professional agents, which gives me some degree of confidence that my data is safeguarded. And that's that's great. And Ira, in some ways, was, was trying to be ahead of the curve. First of all, the question was, how do you make money from this kind of a service. And initially, it was important that they got the early adopters to beat up on the system and test it. And some of those early adopters are people, well, frankly, like me, with money to spend, who would pay for a subscription service that enhanced their lives and enriched their lives. But given the socioeconomic status of most blind people, that was never going to be a viable business model. And that's where IRA Access comes in because I think the future of IRA is in those partnerships, making it free in most cases for the end user who doesn't have a lot of money to throw at this. And so IRA Access is really sensible. And I presume that IRA's second to last most recent leadership, because they now have a new CEO again, acknowledge this with the IRA is free thing, where you got a set number of minutes that you could could use on a free call. What they needed to do was to get those numbers up and make it a more attractive proposition for IRA access. So they've been at the forefront of some pretty cool technology, trying to push the current technology to its limits, particularly in the United States, where, you know, some networks are still quite patchy in certain areas. So that, that's a real problem, and it's no fault of iris technology. It's a challenge that hopefully 5G and more widespread cells will fix, but they've been pushing the boundaries of the tech. In terms of whether Horizon glasses will work with a standard Android phone, 
I'm pretty confident in saying the answer is no, because the drivers to make those glasses work were embedded in the Horizon software that is proprietary to Ira. So I don't think you'll be able to use the glasses for anything else unless, of course, Ira puts some sort of driver in the public domain. And even then, I'm not sure how viable that is on Android or not. And now the moment you've all been waiting <laughs> for. It's the Bonnie Politics. Hello. Welcome to you. Hello. What's been happening? That really troublesome, deeply tragic things happening in Nashville. Yeah. That, um, and surrounding areas. And surrounding areas. As many of you know, Tennessee was struck by a very deadly tornado uh, early Tuesday morning, which um, if there's any blessing in this, the fact that it did strike at night, because if it had struck during the daytime, there would have been much more loss of life. So I've been in contact with my immediate family lives in the Nashville area. So I've been in contact with my sister. She is a curriculum supervisor for the Wilson County School Systems. They lost two elementary schools that took direct hits. And we're completely destroyed. So, again, thankful that that did not happen during the day because it would have been tragic. Um, also, the the office that – I never worked in the, that office, but I had my interviews in that office when I, when I got my first job with the state, when my first real job uh, was with the state of Tennessee. And that office has been destroyed. So a lot of buildings completely leveled. In and around the Nashville area, Cookville had the most loss of life. Yeah, so if you can donate anything to the Tennessee Tornado Relief, uh, that would be great. Mother Nature is a very humbling thing. It is, because yeah. that's something that you absolutely cannot control. I mean, it's and tornadoes particularly, they can pop up like that. You know, it can be a completely calm day and one whips up and they're very – I have never actually been in one. I have been around where they were, and I've certainly had my share of tornado watches and tornado warnings over the year. But that is one thing I don't ever, ever want to experience. That's just, to me, it's more terrifying. It's almost like earthquakes because you have no real warning. I mean, some people with this tornado had five seconds. One guy had, he was out in his yard at midnight. I don't know why he was out in his yard at midnight, but that's okay. I saw him on the news, and he got the push on his phone and ran down to his basement just as the tornado hit and took his house. So very fortunate. Um, yeah. But where where I now understand a lot of radon gas is. Yeah. Oh, oh. yeah. It's a fascinating thing, this radon yeah. gas. <laughs> yes, I grew up with hearing about it. Yeah, fascinating. And another thing that's been going on, I have been extremely busy i guess people over here say flat to the boards i say running around like a chicken i think we say flat out actually flat i've out. never heard flat to the boards that's what but... someone said the other day about oh, something okay. um i say running around like a chicken with its head cut off which is right. a really horrible expression but yes yes it is um but we are red puppy appeal is next weekend that is new zealand's guide dogs fundraiser um they call it red puppy appeal because the puppies in training wear vests that are red and I originally volunteered to collect, but then there was an email that got sent out to the Wellington area that they did not have a coordinator for the Wellington Central area. And if they couldn't find someone, then they wouldn't be able to do it in Wellington Central, not entire Wellington area, just the Wellington Central. So I said, OK, 
So this is another decisive step in your quest for world domination. In my quest for world domination. Mm, but good. it's very hard to dominate the world in two weeks, but I seem to be getting there. So, no, it's it's been a lot of fun. Uh, or it is a lot. Of, at least I think it's a little. The Monday, Friday and Saturday will be when the real test is. But um, getting my roster ready, um, talking to some really amazing volunteers. And that, I guess, is what I've learned over the years. When you get stressed out with these kind of things is you have to look at the ultimate goal, the ultimate prize. And when you're talking to the volunteers and how much they, they're passionate about it, and some of them are so busy because a lot of them are older people. And, oh, yesterday I collected for the ASPA. Now, what 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 fundraiser is this? And then we do Heart Foundation and, you know, all these different things, which is great. So Yeah. It really does seem about- like volunteerism is on the wane it is younger people it is because i the older people take it very seriously the mm. younger people are kind of gung-ho what you know but whether they actually follow through and i was i visited the women's health collective on tuesday which is a um a collective in wellington that such pro- a cool name it always makes me think of that monty python thing about we're a narco-syndicus commune yeah <laughs> <laughs> But they do free counseling for women and they also do educate, you know, referrals and it's kind of a safe place for women. And I went Mm. over there to talk to them about what I do and what they do. Um, And they really know how to work with disabled people. So I was really, really impressed. But um, that was one conversation we had is just that volunteerism is is people don't do it anymore. It's just Uh, well, and, and the comment she made, a lot of it is because it used to be the women that did the volunteering, but women work now. You know, they're not housewives or anymore, and a lot of them have jobs, and, you know, they just don't have time. You have to contend with the formidable Yvonne Peters, who writes, Hello, Jonathan, this is Yvonne Peters, just in case we're in any doubt, from Winnipeg in Manitoba, Canada. Manitoba. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. I was getting confused Not with Minitoba. my mate Amy Clo- Klobuchar. It's like Minnesota a law firm. Klobuchar, Buttigieg, and, and Bloomberg Limited. Anyway, no, you're right. Manitoba. Manitoba, oh, people Canada. People in Minnesota sound like they're from Manitoba. Sounds like Chattanooga Choo-Choo. Yeah. Go Manitoba. to Manitoba, then Minnesota. Anyway, no, no stalling on your part, Bonnie uh-huh. Mosen, will delay any further your need to contend with the formidable Yvonne Peters. Who continues, love the Mosin at Large podcast. So refreshing to go to a place to listen to honest, informative, and sometimes amusing conversations about being blind. I just want to give a big shout out of yes to the many points raised by Bonnie regarding the rights and responsibilities of guide dog handlers here in Canada The Canadian Transportation Agency is also reviewing whether airlines should continue to permit access to untrained emotional support animals. The coalition I belong to is firmly on the side of only permitting access to guide and service dogs that have been trained to perform a task related to a person's disability. I would like to weigh in on your question about the use of official identification documents as a means of ensuring access. Uh, it sounds like me that needs to contend with mm-hmm. Yvonne then, not you. <laughs> Still, you can bear the burden, I'm sure. I understand that initially this may seem a practical and logical idea, but I say be careful what you wish for. This idea was introduced by way of legislation in the province of British Columbia. 
This has resulted in many guide dog and service dog handlers being stopped numerous times a day and requested to produce their identification. In some cases, a person may be asked multiple times in a facility for their identification. Some refer to this as a form of profiling. Yeah, stop and frisk for blind people. This approach can be time-consuming and frustrating. It also flies in the face of most Canadian human rights legislation, which assumes that guide and service dog handlers have an automatic right of access to public places. As Bonnie noted, the best way to identify a legitimate guide or service dog is to observe the deportation and behaviour of the dog. If the dog is following the commands of its handler, not interfering with the public or property of the facility, and generally behaving appropriately, then you probably have a legitimate guide dog or service dog, or perhaps a very well-trained slash behaved pet. I understand that businesses prefer the simple rule of checking ID rather than observing behaviour, but convenience should not be allowed to override established human rights principles. Look forward to more lively conversations and debates on your show. That's a very cogent argument. Yeah, Thank she you so does. Much. I mean, she yeah. has a very good point, and she is absolutely one. I've been in class with Yvonne twice. She's Whoa! Just, she's wonderful. You're famous. No, yeah, no, she's wonderful. Yeah. It's it's kind of cool when you get in class with people you know again. And she, mm. I got to know her a lot better in the second class because um, I was just a measly little kid when she was in my first class. That was a great <laughs> class we had back in 2004. But no, she is correct. I have heard a little bit of rumblings about the British Columbia thing on guide dog lists. And I know there's a difference, and Yvonne, correct me, because – I, I don't know much. I've been to Canada. Sometimes I play a Canadian on the bus because people think I'm Canadian. Which is probably easier these days. Ah, yeah. Mm. Like, yeah, mm. but you can't really pretend to be from Canada because if you if they said, where are you from? And you just... Just know, say Manitoba. Manitoba. But then they <laughs> would ask, oh, do you know this place? Or, you know, if I said I was from Toronto, where in Toronto? I don't know. Just Toronto. I don't remember, you know, or, or if you're w- from... W- wasn't that the name of the Lone Ranger's horse? No, oh, that was Toronto, oh, well, not Manitoba. No, no. no Manitoba's a really Toronto. nice place. I, the Lone Ranger in Toronto. No, Toronto. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, she does make some. Really oh no, no, that was Silver. Who, who was Tonto? Who? Tonto was his friend. Oh, it was his friend. That's right. That's yeah. his oh, Indian yeah. friend. Roy Rogers had Trigger. Trigger. Several triggers. Gene Autry had Champ. Dale Evans had Buttermilk. Oh, Buttermilk. And who else? Who are the famous? Hopalong Cassidy had Topper. <laughs> yeah, Topper. <laughs> Wilbur and Mr. Ed. <laughs> and I have Marcus and several others. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's interesting. I always compare Roy Rogers to Morris Frank because all of his seeing eye dogs were named Buddy. And then Buddy. Roy Rogers, hey, Buddy. But yes, hey, buddy. And they were all girls, too. Mm, yeah. um, Weird. Well, because his first dog was named Kiss, and he said, I can't have a dog named Kiss and be a man in Nashville. It's going to call you Buddy. Uh, but, yeah, <laughs> she does She does make some really good points. And I yes, have, that was a very, I very coaching argument. And I have heard about the issues in BC. I do really sympathize a lot with the point that, that you're making, Yvonne, but I guess the point I would make is that if – we as a community had stamped out this whole emotional support thing much earlier, we probably wouldn't be asked to show the ID so often. Uh, but, but I mean, that ship has sailed. I accept that. Um, yeah. And it so. would be annoying. 
annoying to have to show your ID oh, constantly. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you're just trying to go about your lawful business. I mean, she's, and, and, yeah. and she's right with businesses. They want the simple solution yeah, because yeah. everybody wants the simple solution. But I also think that that's where you have your consumer groups or whatever you have in Canada, CNIB or, or whatever it is, that has to get in there and say, look. This is what you have to and, – and again, that's what's happened over the years is these emotional support animals and have taken – you know, have coattailed on the rights of legitimate guide and service animals. And that's mm. – it is – the bottom line, as Yvonne pointed out, it's behavior. It is. I mean, they're seeing eye dogs. There are guide dogs from every school in the world that are poorly. There behaved. are some pretty badly behaved guide dogs. There are dogs. some very and, badly And have you noticed them? that a lot of them belong to pretty badly behaved people? I mean, like ill-disciplined people. Oh, yeah. Here's Petra. Hooray! Haven't heard from you for a bit, Petra. Good morning, she says. I was a Horizon user for a short time, and I did have some trouble, though. I think it was mostly me. They have told us that we do not need to return the equipment and they will reset the controller phone so it can be used as a smartphone if we would like. Ah, okay. So you could put TalkBack on it. They have been wonderful. I used my iPhone and AirPods Pro with the phone around my neck and it worked great. I have trouble getting a volunteer on Be My Eyes but never with Ira and they are very helpful. My cousin Georgia and I played Monopoly for days at a time. I'm afraid as kids we did bend the rules and sometimes had to use checkers and dominoes for hotels and houses. I guess because that's another big monopoly trick, Petra. What you do is sometimes it's in your interests not to put... I shouldn't be telling you this. I shouldn't be. I, but I'm probably not going to play monopoly with you, am I? It's Sometimes it's best not to put hotels on a group because then you exhaust the supply of houses. There's a finite number of houses in the board game. And if you're playing by the proper rules, that can actually prevent other people from doing damage to you because the supply of houses is finite. Yeah, good little monopoly trick there. Unfortunately, she says, I don't have anyone to play games with these days. Oh, no, we need to do this online. Are you on Irius Games, Petra? That's quite fun. Hello, Jonathan. This is Saddam from Australia in Melbourne. And I just wanted to comment on a couple of things. Uh, first of all, thanks so much for the podcast that you're doing with uh, the Mosin at Large. I've been listening to all the episodes and really thoroughly enjoying it. So thanks so much, man, for the wonderful content that you push out. It's the highlight of my weekend. I wanted to comment on ringtones. I've been making ringtones with SoundForge for a while now. And I do the same thing that you do. I just transfer them using Walter 2. And it's a great application. I, I use it on my Windows PC to transfer my ringtones to my iPhone 11 Pro Max, 512 gig, and it works well. The other thing I wanted to comment on is about the, I think a little, uh, on a couple of episodes ago, you were talking about blindness agencies using the word vision or using terms to do with sight. I think that's pretty ridiculous, and I'm with you on this one. I find it very offensive and 
very uncouth. Uncouth. Well, that's an interesting way of putting it. Thank you very much. And I'm good to hear you calling in from sunny Australia. I mentioned this on Twitter and got quite a bit of positive reaction. So in case you don't follow me there, I will mention it here. Two or three weeks ago, I got an email from Uber saying that they were introducing a pin feature. And I don't know whether this has been around longer in other markets, but the idea of this is that you go into settings and drill down a bit and you find this option where you can require that before your ride starts, you have to exchange pins with the driver. And the way this works is normally you get two notifications when you order an Uber. The first one tells you that your driver's on the way and who it is and roughly when they're expected to arrive. And the second notification that I used to get would just say, check your ride every time and all this sort of stuff. And of course, as a blind person, it's difficult to do that. It's difficult to verify that the person who claims they're an Uber is the same person in the same car with the same number plate as the app says you should get. The pin feature gives you a lot of peace of mind because when you enable it, the second notification says, when your driver arrives, give this pin number to them. And it's a four-digit pin. And the ride can't start unless you do. So don't lose that notification, man. So uh, you get into the vehicle and you exchange the pin and the driver enters it into their app. And then you get a notification saying your driver has entered the correct pin. Enjoy your ride. So this is a good feature. I know based on replies I've had that it is certainly available in the United States as well. And it's great. So if you want a bit of extra peace of mind with your Uber, definitely go in and turn that feature on. Health. That's important, isn't it? A bit of health news. As many people who've been listening to me for a long time will know, a few years ago, I got heavily into ketogenic eating, the low-carb lifestyle. And Bonnie keeps saying these very kind things to me, like, you are the most motivated person I know, and you have so much energy, and yeah, that's nice. But the reason for that is the low-carb eating. It has just given me so much energy, and I feel so much better, and I've lost a heck of a lot of weight. So here's an interesting thing that's being um, distributed all over the place at the moment, but this particular reference to it comes from The Guardian, where they say that a low-carbohydrate diet may prevent and even reverse age-related damage to the brain, researchers found. By examining brain scans, researchers found that brain pathways begin to deteriorate in our late 40s earlier than was believed. Yeah, so if you're starting to kind of feel a bit wilted and you're at that age group, that could be why. You, it's the carbs doing it. Neurobiological changes associated with aging can be seen at a much younger age than would be expected in the late 40s. This is according to Liliane R. Mayika Parodi. She is a professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering at Stony Brook University in New York. However, the study also suggests that this process may be prevented or reversed based on dietary changes that involve minimizing the consumption of simple carbohydrates, she added. To better understand how diet influences brain aging, researchers concentrated on young people whose brains showed no signs of aging. This is the period during which prevention may be most effective. Using brain scans of nearly 1,000 individuals between the ages of 18 and 88. Researchers found that the damage to neural pathways accelerated 
depending on where the brain was getting its energy from. Glucose, they found, decreased the stability of the brain's networks, while ketones, produced by the liver during a period of carbohydrate-restrictive diets, made the networks more stable. What we found, she says, with these experiments involves both bad and good news. The bad news is that we see the first signs of brain ageing much earlier than was previously thought. However, the good news is that we may be able to prevent or reverse these effects with diet by exchanging glucose for ketones as fuel for neurons. The study is published in PNAS. We think that, as people get older, their brains start to lose the ability to metabolize glucose efficiently, causing neurons to slowly starve and brain networks to destabilize, she said. So we tested whether giving the brain a more efficient fuel source in the form of ketones, either by following a low-carb diet or drinking ketone supplements, could provide the brain with greater energy, even in younger individuals. This added energy, further stabilizing brain networks. A ketogenic diet is one high in fats and proteins and low in carbohydrates, forcing the body to burn fats rather than carbohydrates. So there you go. That may well explain why I've been feeling so good over the last few years. If you'd like to make a contribution to be considered for next week's show, Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com with an audio attachment or write something down. And you can call the listener line in the United States. That's 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin at Large Podcast.